Let's open up to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. And He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And as we talked about Sunday morning, these are penitent words of a future generation. Spoken, I believe, by those who will one day say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Hosea's day, however, these were not words of penitence because there was no repentance that accompanied the words. And we talked about that on Sunday. And the Lord's response, picking up in verse 4, is, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. By the way, you know the Word of God does that. The Word of God slays and hews and cuts. And so don't be surprised if you're talking to someone about Jesus and they have a negative reaction because the Word of God hews. And if you want a good description for the word hues, watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Okay? And, and just watch what uh, Gimli, is it, the dwarf, does with his axe to the approaching orcs. Okay? That's hues. If you haven't seen it, you don't know what I'm talking about, you just need to check that out. His word does that. It cuts in. It chops up. It's not always a comfortable thing. Even for those of us following Jesus, it can get a little a little uncomfortable. Oh, there goes an arm. <laughs> Better to enter into glory without that arm. So whatever the Lord cuts off of our lives, however He goes about slaying by the words of the prophets, uh, I, I welcome it. I welcome it. Because truly what happens with me is when He hews in my life, it's, it's all the fatty stuff that I don't need anyway. And then he says in verse 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. We're going to talk about treachery tonight. That is the running theme uh, through these next few chapters. We actually move away somewhat uh, from the marital picture and more into the relationship of God and, and people. Though the marital picture of Hosea and Gomer is always in the background of this entire story, now God is getting a little intense. And He points to and describes in details Israel's treachery. I read the word treacherously. You have dealt treacherously against me. And when I think of treachery, it makes me think of something you might see in a pirate movie. You know, or in a spy novel. But truly the word treacherous, don't let it run over your heads. It's a very simple word in the Hebrew, Bagad, and Bagad means to betray trust. It's as simple as that. To deal unfaithfully. The Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way, it's a failure to carry out the responsibilities of a natural or contractual relationship. 
Which is why the whole picture of the marriage is before us. Because truly marriage is a contractual relationship. I know that makes romance sound all business-like, but you do enter into a covenant, into a contract in a marriage. And when that is betrayed, it is begot. It is treachery. As far as the Lord is concerned. So we'll look at six issues of treachery tonight. And the first one is just the definition. Treachery betrays trust. Treachery betrays trust. Again, we see that picture in the treachery, truly, the betrayal of Gomer, who is already a loose woman, but brought in, married to Hosea, and then takes off on him again. And is messing around behind his back even before she leaves. We see this very difficult marriage between the two as a picture the Lord pulls out of treachery. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 says, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Had a couple of different guys on Sunday morning come up to me and say, Isn't it more typical that men are treacherous than women? And I thought about that and I went, Well, yeah, but for the man to be treacherous, wouldn't there have to be a treacherous woman too? So I think we're all in this together, this idea of betrayal, of treachery. And the Lord goes deeper with this. Here's the marital picture, but then He dives all the way back to the beginning and He compares their treachery to that of Adam. Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now think about that. What natural contractual relationship did Adam betray? If you read the story of Adam and Eve at the very beginning of Genesis, if you read it as God getting mad because they ate a piece of fruit, you miss the point. It's far greater than that. It's far more than that. It led to a wholesale violation of the very first God-to-man covenant. And in that violation, it led to the loss of ownership over the earth. When God created the earth, He gave it to mankind. He gave it to Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.28, here's the covenant. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Gang, the idea, what God handed Adam was the idea of rule and subjugation. You are now in charge of the planet. I'm putting it under your authority, Adam. Under your authority, Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully sinned. Knowing what he was doing. And in so doing, he upset the natural created order, which was supposed to be God giving authority to man. When he sinned, Adam handed that authority over to the devil. Which was Satan's intention in the first place. So the natural order of things upset, the natural contractual agreement messed up, the very next thing we see is things go upside down. Instead of man having authority over the earth, man now begins to worship the things of the earth. Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What I'm saying is that the idolatry of Israel and the, the violation and the treachery of Israel can draw all the way back to the sin of Adam. 
He sinned first. But all the way down the line, because the natural order was upset back then, along comes Israel, and now they begin to take after the nations, which took after the nations before them, which ultimately go all the way back to Adam, and they began to worship nature. It's denial of God's divine intentions. Extreme environmentalism. And I joke about it from time to time, but i got to tell you, living up here in the beautiful green northwest, where there are many environmentalists, there's a very fine line between stewardship and worship. And we see a lot of people worshiping Mother Earth. I hate the phrase Mother Earth. I gotta tell you, it just, Mother Nature ticks me off when they say that on the weather. Oh, Mother Nature's bringing a storm tonight. And I'm like, no, Father God is, and you better get out of His way. <laughs> but as we joke about sometimes, or I poke fun at some of the real extreme environmentalism, I, I, gang, it is a violation of the natural created order. It is a worship of things that God never intended for us to worship. We're just one step away from taking, you know, the spotted owl and making it into an idol. Or taking the trees and making them into, or the salmon and making them into idols that we bow down before. And gang, there were people here before, before we were who worshipped all of these creatures too. It's treachery 101. Taking God's divine intentions and denying them so that what's good and beautiful and right becomes exploited. And he's going to give us two examples of exploitation in two one-time holy cities. Verse 8, Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem, Surely they have committed crime. He gives you two cities here in Israel. Gilead and Shechem. Both were holy cities at one time. You Bible students may recall this. They were both set apart for divine purposes. Numbers 35, Joshua 20 and 21. You can read both of these cities, Gilead and Shechem, were priestly cities. In all of the cities there in Israel, remember the Levites weren't given a portion of land. They were given cities within all the portions so the priests would be spread out in and among the people. Forty-eight cities were given to the Levites to dwell in and inhabit in and among all the tribes of Israel. Two of those 48 cities were Gilead and Shechem. But more than that, both of these two cities were among the six cities that God set apart as cities of refuge. Places to which someone could run if there had been an accidental death, if they were guilty of manslaughter. Because in those days, if you were the cause of someone else's death, uh, uh, an avenging uh, kinsman redeemer, a Gaal, could come after you and avenge the death of the one who had been killed. But in God's economy, He set up the cities of refuge to which the person could run if they were guilty, though inadvertently they could run for protection. And they would live, could live in that city protected against, against the Redeemer until the high priest had died. Which there's so many great parallels there. I, I don't have time to go into right now. But these were priestly cities of refuge. Gilead and Shechem. And they both had been marred and exploited by idolatry to the extreme. 
Gilead, he says, was tracked with bloody footprints. What does that mean? It means that there was bloodshed all outside of the city before people could get in. Before you could run to refuge, people were being killed. And the blood of their death being tracked into the city. A band of marauding priests murdering people en route to Shechem. Before they could get into the city. Now, I don't know if this was really going on. You know, if there was actual bloodshed and murder outside of the cities, perhaps in terms of the idol worshiping going on. But there's a a bigger picture going on here. The idea is that the priests of Israel were killing people with idolatry before they could get to the refuge of the Lord. Before they could enter those cities of refuge. Spiritual death was happening all over Israel due to the idolatry that the priests themselves were wholesale wrapped up in. It's what they were doing. And I read that, and you know, anytime I read priest in the scriptures, I immediately think that we are a royal priesthood. I think of myself, and I, I have to ask the question here have I tracked bloody footprints into the church? Have I murdered on the way? to evening prayer. Listen, what I'm saying here is the sanctified Christian life turns out is far less about the individual than we've made it. It's far less about me. And I confess to you, I spend an awful lot of time thinking about my sanctification. When I think God would rather I spend more time thinking about lost souls. Let Him worry about your sanctification. Let Him worry about your holiness. Let Him be concerned with your righteousness. You be concerned with those who have none. Those who remain lost. Second thing to note, treachery that betrays trust, treachery denies testimony. Treachery denies testimony. Gilead and Shechem, among the other cities of refuge, were a testimony to the nations of God's holiness. These six cities of refuge showed all the nations round about there's something different about this nation. Something different about their God who is a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of compassion. And so the cities of refuge would stand as as it were as cities on a hill. So the other nations could look in and say, wow, that's different. That's not like us. But when the city of refuge itself becomes a hotbed of idolatry where people are being murdered on altars in the cities of refuge and around them, what do the nations think? They laugh off the testimony. The witness is lost. The treachery of Israel now denies the testimony of God's holiness. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so with our lives. When we talk about our witness, witness, my witness is not a mini bio of how I got saved. That's not my witness. It's the beginning of my witness. It may be the start of my witness. My witness is how I live every day of my life. My witness is me in the grocery store not being able to find what I came there to buy and how do I react. You know, My witness is relating to non-Christian friends and showing them Jesus naturally because that's who He's made me to be. Naturally spiritual and spiritually natural, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit so that I have a witness. But what happens when I am treacherous, when I am faithless, when I am not living for Jesus in this world, when I'm living for me, suddenly 
I enter into treachery and people cannot see the cities of refuge. And I pray that I may never, never be one who tracks bloody footprints into the church. Who has caused the death of someone else because they can't come to the Lord for salvation because of what they've seen in me. Paul says we are to live this way every day as cities of refuge. We should be Gilead before idolatry. Shechem back when it was originally holy. That's our calling. Outposts of mercy. You know, places of compassion and grace where people see Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 15.18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have, check this out, I have fully preached the Gospel of Christ. You have not fully preached the Gospel of Christ simply by giving your mini-bio. You fully preach the Gospel of Christ in your entire life as a place of refuge. Well, Gilead and Shechem were a bad sign. Treachery denies testimony. Verse 10, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there, and Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. Now, wait a minute. That sounds weird. (laughs) So is Judah's harvest a good thing? Because immediately he says, it's when I restore the the fortunes of my people, but he's just been in the flow of a negative thing. He's just been judging the north. Listen again. He says, Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, continuing the thought, there's a harvest appointed for you. Now that sounds like judgments are coming. But the very next thing he says is, when I restore the fortunes of my people. So how do we work that out? Well, we know God's going to restore the fortunes of His people, so there's no question about that. And I'm talking at a time yet future. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will remain. The first time was bringing them back from Babylon. There's a second recovery. Isaiah 11, verse 12, He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah. So both the northern and the southern kingdom will be gathered from the four corners of the earth. Promised through Isaiah, a promise that is yet to happen that we're beginning to see happen as the Jews are coming back to Israel. But what does he mean, also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you? And in context, I believe it's judgment. I believe he is saying... Judah, don't think you're off the hook here. Israel is definitely going down, but it would be 130 years after Israel was taken out by Assyria, 130 years later, that Babylon flowed in and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, Bible students note, and here's how I think we figure this out. The original scrolls didn't have chapter and verse. Sometimes it was hard to even divide paragraphs because they would just write. And so in this case, there are some who who think, and I would lean this direction, that the second half of verse 11 is actually connected to the first verse of chapter 7. That it actually continues on. So we end with the thought, also, O Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you, and then we continue on with the next thought. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel... 
the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. So what's he saying here? Well, first of all, understand that Israel, Ephraim, and Samaria, all three mentioned in verse 1, are synonyms of the same nation. Ephraim, Samaria, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Israel. So it's all synonyms here. And what we see the Lord doing is contrasting His desire to heal and restore with Israel's treachery. He says, I would restore you. And I believe right then God would have restored Israel. He would have stopped the Assyrian invasion right then if the people truly repented, if they had turned to Him. I believe He would restore the fortunes of Judah and never have let Babylon come in had the people of Judah not been treacherous in their faith. His desire to heal compared to Israel's treachery I would restore, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. Over a century after this, Jeremiah, weeping for Judah, would write these words. Remembering Israel's demise, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 22, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Well, no, because Gilead had gone the way of treachery. Gilead, the city of refuge, was now a city of idolatry, and actually when Jeremiah spoke, was completely wiped out. There was no healing from Gilead. God would have given it a balm in Gilead if Gilead hadn't been tracked with bloody footprints. So while the Lord's trying to extend grace and healing, more and more disease was uncovered in Ephraim. Number three, about treachery, it testifies against the treacherous. Treachery testifies against the treacherous. The false witness only hurts the false witness. The liar hurts the liar. The treacherous one testifies against himself. Verse 1 continues and says, The thief enters in, bandits raid outside. Well, Jesus tells us the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly, but the influence of the thief is on Israel now inside and out. The thief is there. The devil is at work there. And in this place, God would heal, but more and more sin is uncovered. You know what it's like? Sin is like flesh-eating disease. Years ago, a young man in a church I was serving in got flesh-eating disease. And it was in his neck. He survived miraculously. There was massive prayer that went into saving this young man's life. And I believe God healed him. But there was a point where the disease, they just kept having to literally cut away under the bottom of his chin, open his neck, and scrape out the disease. And then leave it open to heal, hoping that no more would come in. And just when they thought they got it, they found more. And it just kept happening and kept coming and kept coming. And that's kind of what the Lord is describing here. Is like the physician comes into the hospital room and says, Okay, I'm ready to heal, ready to clean out, open up. And it's just rampant. And that's kind of the picture we see here of God coming and saying, I would heal, but your iniquity is uncovered. Verse 2, And they do not consider in their hearts, literally, they do not say to their hearts, that I remember all their wickedness. They don't think it through. They don't realize I know what's going on. 
Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. This is brazen sin, gang. With their wickedness, they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. Now, as we consider treachery tonight, watch this, because through the next couple chapters, there's some fascinating word pictures. I mentioned there are several in this book. Hosea is going to take off on a bunch of them right now. Verse 4, They are all adulterers like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Okay, so number one, Israel is like a baker's oven. You can kind of tuck this number one under number three, which is treachery testifies against the treacherous. Okay, so this is the first word picture we see tonight. A baker's oven. But it's a baker's oven fire that is not stirred. So the oven has fire in it, but it's kind of left uh, inside, baking underneath. I remember when I was a kid in Southern California, we were always told when we went out on the beaches, don't step in the fire pits. If you're out in the morning on the beach, don't step in the fire pit, because if someone had had a fire the night before and covered it up with sand, the coals or the logs underneath could still be simmering under there. It could still be hot. And so think about it that way. The baker's oven is hot inside, but it's not kindled. It's not stirred up until the leaven has worked all the way through the dough. And once the dough is ready, once the leaven is full, and leaven, Bible students, is a picture of sin. sin in the Bible. So once the sin has worked all through Israel, now the baker stirs the oven. And now that baker's oven is hot with lust. It just explodes with heat. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 5 going on, continuing this thought, he says, On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. They got drunk out of their minds. The day of our king, it would have been a festival that they all got together and they were just drinking and getting drunk. Then he stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. You might notice the word anger is the same word there in verse 6 that is baker in verse 4. It is literally baker. So it's not that their anger smolders all night, it's that their baker, and the word smolders is uh, slumbers. Their baker slumbers all night. Okay, so he's, he's sleeping while, the ang- while, while things are smoldering. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven. And they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. So that first word picture is simply that once sin had worked all the way through Israel, their smoldering lust gets stirred up and just ignites. And that's the point that they're at right now. Here's the next word picture. I like this one. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. A cake not turned. How many of you enjoy a good stack of pancakes? I'm a big pancake fan. These are, uh, this is what he's talking about. It's a cake that is actually baked on a pan. I got to tell you, as much as I love pancakes, I really like both sides to be done. Which is kind of, maybe it's just me. What is he saying here? You have to forgive me the pun, but what he's saying is their loyalty is half-baked. He really is. And this is the humor of the Father coming out even in these word pictures. Their loyalty is half-baked. One side is browned and warm. The other side is gooey and cold. 
And he says, Israel, that's you. That's where your loyalties at. That's your treachery right there. You can't have it both ways. You can't be nice and cooked on one side and gooey and cold on the other. You can't be well cooked and runny. You can't be lukewarm. Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I always thought about that as like a lukewarm drink of some kind. You know, maybe a lukewarm orange soda. Nasty. Yeah, it's gross. But think about being lukewarm in terms of a nasty pancake half cooked. Someone puts that on your plate. I think I told you, this may have been years ago. I was trying to remember if I shared this, but my mom pulled a fast one on us when we were kids. Tuesday morning was pancake morning in my house. Have I told you about this, Sarah? Pancake morning. I loved it. And Tuesday, I was like a zombie all day long because it was like sugar. I went to school, pancakes and syrup. That was all I had. But I loved it. And one morning, my mom decided to be healthy. And so she sliced up bananas and stuck them in the pancake batter and didn't tell us. Now, I like banana pancakes. I'm good with that. Bananas in the batter, bananas on top, whatever. But when I took that first bite of pancake and there was that gooey stuff inside, it was like, what is this? This uncooked mass of goo. And my mom had done that before when she was in a hurry. You know, stuck the pancake on the plate, it looked brown on the outside, and you cut into it and it goes... Disgusting. Jesus says, I'll spit that out of my mouth. And I did. (laughs) Spit it right out. Next thing he says is a silly dove. A silly dove, verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. A silly dove without sense. Look back, he says, people have taken away your strength. You don't even have a clue. You've got gray hair sprinkled on your head. What's that about? You should have some wisdom. The gray's there. You obviously have lived a few years. You should have at least a smattering of wisdom, but you don't have a clue. You're without sense. You're a silly dove. You're flitting. You're flying. He says here, continuing on, they're without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. What does that tell you? It tells us that Hosea had made this word quite clear. That the prophets had proclaimed these warnings in the assembly of the people. And by this point, though they had had this proclamation in their full hearing, in Hosea's ministry, Israel had now gone through three decades of acting like a silly dove. And he mentions Egypt and Assyria. He's talking about a bad, flighty foreign policy. For three decades, the foreign policy of Israel had been like a silly dove, darting back and forth between these two nations. We can read about that. We're not going to right now, but check it out. In 2 Kings 15 and 2 Kings 17 tells the story. covers this 30-year period. 2 Kings 15, verse 20. King Menachem. Under him, Israel became a vassal state to Assyria. Began to pay large amounts of tribute to Assyria so Assyria would leave Israel alone. King Menachem did that. Well, after him, along comes King Pekah. 
And King, thank you. King Pekah joined an alliance against Assyria, and Assyria came down and absolutely crushed the Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and five other cities in Israel. 2 Kings 15.29 So Israel again becomes a vassal state paying tribute up to Assyria. Finally, across this 30-year period, along comes King Hoshea, the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he rebelled. He just stopped making payments to Assyria, and he sent a delegation down to Egypt, this twittering, fleeing dove, goes now down to Egypt and says, hey, let's make an alliance, help me out here, and maybe we can push back against Assyria. And all of this resulted in the Assyrian invasion of 722 B.C. Finally, King Hoshea, after nine years of rule, is taken out, taken off into captivity, and Israel is wiped out because Israel was a silly dove. Bad foreign policy. The policy of appeasement. See if that sounds familiar. Verse 13. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart. That's with authenticity, gang. That's that's the genuine relationship God's looking for. Not someone to play the game, but to really come to Him. To truly long for Him. When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves and they turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are like, here's the next word picture, they are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. A deceitful bow. What does that mean? It means they weren't shooting straight with the Lord. It's like having a bow that looks good. You buy it on the shelf, you take it out to hunt, you pull back, you let go, and the arrow goes way off to the left or shoots off to the right. You cannot get it to shoot straight. And that's the problem with Israel. They're not shooting straight. They're not dealing honestly. They're crying out religiously, Oh, save us! While they run off to their idols. And they're not dealing truthfully with the Lord. Again and again we see this in the Bible. We see God asking for honesty. We see Him saying, look, just just come and talk to me. Just be real with me. Don't try to sweep your stuff under the rug. Lay it out and let's deal with it. Don't try to hide your disease. Let me heal you of it. Bring it to me. He asks for truth and He gets treachery. Because we really think we can make it right without Him. God wants us, invites us, calls us constantly just to bring it into the light. Best thing you can do with a sin in your life, if you've got some sin issue that you're having trouble dealing with, bring it into the light. Husbands, if you've got a sin issue, tell your wife. Get it out in the open. Grab some other guys. Bring it out and say, here's my deal. Wives, if you've got some issue, take it to your husband. Bring it to him. Brothers, tell sisters, sisters, brothers, fathers, mother, everybody, let's talk. Let's, let's be honest, let's be open. Oh, but you, you wouldn't believe what he did. That's not openness. It's gossip. But let's get real with the Lord. Instead of playing the games. He just, he's not into that. He says, Psalm 97 verse 11, Light is sown like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. In other words, righteousness equals happiness. Holiness equals joy. 
walking in the light is actually kind of fun. It's relieving. There's liberty. There's peace there. 1 John 1.7 we say all the time, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Why? Because we don't have anything to hide. You can know me as I am. I can know you as we are. And we can walk with the Lord because we're not hiding those things that we fear are going to trip us up. God says bring them out so we can get them off the path. And we have fellowship with one another. And when we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that's a good place to be. So liberating. No hiding, no deceit, just getting real before God. Well, chapter 8, verse 1, continuing on. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. The eagle was the national symbol of Assyria. So here comes Assyria against the house of the Lord. Blow the trumpet, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. The trumpet was blown for two reasons. A call to assembly or a call to arms. Those are the primary two reasons why they would have the blowing of the trumpet in Israel. Call to assembly, call to arms. This trumpet was the assembly of the troops of Assyria. Number four, if you're following this, treachery is a trumpet call to the enemy. When I am treacherous, when I am faithless, when I am lying... All it is is like blowing a big trumpet to the armies of the enemy. Come on in. It's an invitation to war. Israel hears the trumpet sound and they think it's the Lord calling them for an assembly and so they cry out, Oh my God, we know you! We know you! And Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Matthew 7, 22, 23. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness, you could translate treachery. That passage used to haunt me as a kid. I don't know about you, but the thought that I might show up there And say, Lord, it's me! And have Jesus say, I'm sorry, what was your name? I don't really know you. I'm I'm sorry, you're going to have to go over to that line. That really did. It would unnerve me before I began to realize that Christianity isn't about doing these things and hoping you're noticed for Him. That Christianity is about being with Him and talking to Him and being in that that relationship, that covenant relationship with Jesus. And as we've been saying, and if you ever wonder this, well, what if He doesn't know me? Look, if knowing Him changes you. Okay? So, if your life has been changed by Jesus, He knows you. Because you're not making those changes on your own. If there are alterations in who you are, if you're seeing the world differently, if you're living and loving and you're compassionate like He is, well, yeah, you're in a relationship with Him. Because the love of Jesus spills over and out of our lives. And so, knowing Him changes me, and if it doesn't, then I would say, you may not really know Him. And I don't speak that as judgment, it's just a reality. If walking with and being with Jesus doesn't change me at my core, who I really am, If I'm no different now than I was before I knew Him, then perhaps I really don't know Him. 
Because knowing Him changes me. My God, we of Israel know You. He says in verse 3, Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue Him. They have set up kings, but not by Me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know. With their silver and gold they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. That golden calf set up. Two of them. Remember, one up in Dan, the other one down in Bethel. Two golden calves set up by Jeroboam in Israel for the people to go worship. And I love the statement that he makes there. Note that a craftsman made it so it is not God. That's an idol. Something not made by the hands of God, but made by the hands of man. And he says it's going to be smashed, broken to pieces. Verse 7, For they sow to the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. He's talking about both famine and invasion. Famine, the standing grain has no heads. He's trying to get to the people of Israel. Famine has now come on the land. They have no food. They can't eat. Things are not good. And even if the food returned, even if the crops began to grow again, strangers would swallow it up. Here comes the invasion. So famine and invasion, and Israel had no idea that what they were getting, what they were reaping, was all of their sowing to the wind. It's an interesting phrase. They sow to the wind. It talks about futility. They they, they take the good seed of the Lord and they just throw it out there. I mean, what kind of farmer does that? Okay, my field's here. I'm not sure which way the wind's blowing, but I'm just going to chuck my seed in the air and hope it lands. That's poor farming. What they reap because they sowed futilely, in futility, they reap a tornado of wrath. It comes back on them. Jeremiah 12.13 says, They have sown wheat, but have reaped thorns. They have strained themselves to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And note that, they sow to the wind. doesn't seem like... You know, they're just kind of throwing it out there and they reap the whirlwind. And have you ever wondered that judgment sometimes seems more intense than sin does? Ah, the judgment is so harsh. They just, they just sowed to the wind and they get a whirlwind in return? See, here's the thing. Sin is often sown over a long period of time. We don't even realize how bad it is. Because we've been doing it for a while. And little bits here, little bits there, little bits over here. Judgment comes in all at once and seems far more intense than the sin that caused it. But if we could draw back and with the eyes of God really see sin. I've told you before, you know what sin looks like, don't you? It looks like a brutalized, beaten, torn up Jesus on the cross. That's a picture of sin. Sin is an ugly, awful thing, but we just don't see it because it's, it's, you know, it's like sowing to the wind. But then in comes judgment. Like a whirlwind. But don't, don't forget the fierce anger. The other side of all this is though sin is sown over a longer period of time and judgment comes at once. Think about that. That means that God's grace was there for a long period of time too. Before the judgment hits. 
before He allows the whirlwind to come, He gives grace. 900 years of grace for Israel and the land. Just shy of a millennium, God called to the people and tried to woo the people and love on the people and bring the people back to Him. 900 years and then comes the whirlwind. And we are 2,000 years right now into the sustained, patient, long-suffering grace of God. And someone says God is judgmental, I say, man, you have, where have you been for 2,000 years? We are in 2,000 years of grace right now. The whirlwind's coming. How long will He hold back? I don't know. Verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations. Like a vessel in which no one delights. There's another word picture for you. A vessel in which no one delights. A worthless piece of pottery. Perhaps you have one in your kitchen. Maybe you have a pot that nobody's used because all the stuff, you know, the, the, the non-stick stuff is all scraped off now, but it sits in the bottom of the drawer anyway. Why? I don't know. It's still there. Apparently we have one in my house. Uh, a useless vessel, worthless pottery. And this single verse sums up Israel's history for 2,000 years, for the last 2,000 years. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. You hear that right now Jews are fleeing France because of anti-Semitism? Heading back to Israel in droves from France. And it's not because of the fries. <laughs> the anti-Semitism in Europe is growing and intensifying and, and Jews all over the world continue even after 2,000 years even after the Holocaust even after we all realized what a bad thing that was and now we've matured and Danny Glover comes out today and says we ought to boycott Israel I'm like what is wrong with this world? what's wrong with this world? Jews are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. Number five, treachery taints a vessel's usefulness. Treachery taints a vessel's usefulness. Like Israel, if if we delight ourselves in the world, that's where we will end up. Israel wanted a king like the nations, so they ended up in the nations. Israel wanted to look like the nations, so they ended up among the nations. Israel sought after, chased after the gods of the nations, and so now they are under the gods of the nations. Gods with a little g, gods actually I would say demons. Spiritual forces among the nations that are absolutely anti-Semitic because Satan is. And they are now a useless vessel in which no one delights. And we can end up that way, worthless among the nations, if the world is what we want. If the world is what we chase, we become a tainted vessel. The Bible says, Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I see so many people chasing after what they think will make them happy. And you see it too. And we've probably, each one of us at different times, experienced it. I have. Going after something that I thought over here, man, if I do this, this is the deal. This is a good thing over here. It's Jim's statement. It keeps coming to mind. Is it a good thing or is it a God thing? There's lots of good stuff seemingly out in the world. And so we chase it down. Oh, this will make me happy. This is what I want. This is my desire. And God says, you're going about it wrong. 
Delight yourself in me. I'll give you your desires. And by the way, your desires are going to be correct because they're going to be based on delight in the Lord. And that's our calling, not to want the things of the world, but to want the Lord. And what we end up with is far better than anything the world can offer. If my delight is in Him, and check this out, not only will I be delightful to Him, I'll be a useful vessel in His kingdom. I'm the pot in the kitchen that everyone goes for. You know, I'm the pan that's useful. I'm the one that's drawn out for the parties and for the for the fellowships and for for bringing people. I'm the one that's that's used, a useful vessel. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Second Corinthians four seven. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested, seen in our body. That's what I was talking about before. That relationship with Jesus. is I'm in this relationship with Him, and so people see that. It's reflected in me. And that's how I know that I know Him, and that He knows me, because... You see Him in me. And if you don't see Him in me, would you please let me know because I want to make sure you do. Because I want to be known by Him. And you can't walk in a relationship with Jesus without the life of Jesus being manifested in your body. Paul says, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's a very fleshly thing. My walk with Jesus affects where my feet go. The establishments that I will support. The relationships that I'm involved in. The business that I undertake. It's all changed and affected because I walk with Jesus. I become a useful vessel. I may be a bit cracked at times. I may be a little bit scuffed. But gang, there's a treasure in me. There is a treasure in you. The treasure is the Spirit of the living Christ. And even in this earthen vessel, I become useful to the King. Hold that thought. Verse 9. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Wild donkey, there's another word picture for you, just meaning obstinate, out of control, untamable. And it says, Ephraim has hired lovers. And we're probably not even talking about idolatry at this point. We're probably talking about foreign alliances, mercenaries. Verse 10, even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up. And they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Sarmalek, the king of princes, is a title that was given, self-given, self-designated title of King Pole of Assyria. That is Tiglath-Pileser III. Called himself the King of Princes. Kind of like Michael Jackson called himself the King of Pop, you know. I'm going to give myself a title. And that's what he did. And the burden of the King of Princes here is the heavy tribute that Israel was now paying leading up to ultimately their demise. By contrast, the true King of Princes 
the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, He paid our tribute with His own blood. He paid that we might, that we might be saved. And He doesn't glorify Himself. He doesn't give Himself His title. Jesus said in John 8.54, If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is My Father who glorifies Me. Well, verse 11, Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for Him. That might seem obvious. <laughs> you multiply the altars for sin, more sin is going to take place. In other words, when we come up with more ways to sin... Are we surprised that we sin more? Anyone think legalizing pot would cause the usage to decrease? <laughs> That's what he's saying. We just come up with more opportunities to sin. What are we going to do? Sin less? No, we'll sin more. And that's what Israel was doing. More altars, more sin. They're like rabid dogs going after it. Verse 12. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Now note this. The word 10,000 here is rob in the Hebrew, or rabab. And it means an abundance. It's not just a number. 10,000 is you know, kind of like saying a multiplicity, an abundance, a greatness. I like the King James translation of this verse. I have written to him the great things of my law but they were counted as a strange thing. In other words, well, that part of the Bible doesn't really apply to me. Or, that section, that's that's archaic, and it's no longer relevant. I like what it says over here, but I really don't like that, so I'm I'm just going to kind of ignore that part of it. God says, I have shown you, I have given you great things. You know there's not a verse in Scripture that is not a great verse. Not one. Everything here is great because it is all the great things inspired by, given by, brought by the Lord. It all applies. It's always relevant. So why do they call it strange? Because it's unfamiliar. Wow, that's weird. Never saw that before. That can't possibly mean anything to me. That's because you haven't spent time in it. That's because you haven't taken in the Word. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Like John Corson says, if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new. The ancient paths, the old paths, walk in the old ways. Right here, great things. The word is only strange when we are unfamiliar with the ancient paths because we haven't used them. There's rest here and there's peace. And in the Word of God there are 10,000 reasons for us to bless the name of the Lord. Verse 13, as for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now He will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. How ironic. And they did. They did, literally and figuratively. Figuratively, some were being enslaved in the world. 
as Israel is destroyed, dispersed, scattered, cast out into and among the nations, they would be in the same kind of slavery in the nations that they endured for 400 years in Egypt. So figuratively, it was absolutely true. Literally, many of these would flee and move right back down to Egypt. They finally got back there. And the world will do that to us. If we want to be part of the world, if we want Egypt, we'll end up there. It'll enslave us. Just don't forget that Jesus came, Isaiah 61 verse 1, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Number six. Final one. Treachery burns down the temple. And you know that would happen, ultimately. Whether it's Israel's temples of idolatry, or as God calls them out, Judah's fortified cities. Really, Judah? You think that by building up these fortress cities that you can protect yourself? Really, modern Israel? (laughs) Do you think that your nuclear program, secret though it may be, can protect you? Do you think that maintaining the Golan Heights, and by the way, I think they should, I don't think that the, you know this, I don't think the West Bank should be given back. It would leave Israel indefensible from a military perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, God has always only been the defender of Israel. He's the one. Well, Judah was building fortress cities and Israel was building idolatrous palaces and God says, I'm going to burn them all. They're all going to come down. They're all going to burn and eventually so would the house of the Lord. Now, I want you to go back and look at something. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8 again. Because he said something and I don't know if you caught it going by. But he says, put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, again, speaking of Assyria, the enemy comes against what? The house of the Lord. Now wait a minute. You know the history. Assyria came up against Jerusalem. Surrounded Jerusalem. Remember the 185,000 Assyrians that woke up dead? That story. They came against the house of the Lord, but they didn't burn it down. They didn't destroy it. The house of the Lord. The temple, right? I mean, am I understanding correctly that the house of the Lord in Scripture means the temple? Okay. And the temple ultimately would burn to the ground, but not by Assyria. And not because of this particular judgment. The house of the Lord was in Judah, down south, in Jerusalem. And what I'm saying here is the Assyrian eagle did not come against the house of the Lord. Or did it? You see, God speaking in verse 1 of chapter 8, speaking to and of Israel, the northern kingdom, refers to them as the house of the Lord. He's not talking about the temple. He's talking about His people. And God calls His people here the house of the Lord. Because God is never confined to a barn or a building or a temple. 
God wants to be among His people. That was only ever His desire. To be among His people, Israel. Not to be limited to one spot in Jerusalem. And so here, it's almost... If it wasn't so intentional, if I didn't know that God was so intentional, I would almost think He misspoke His heart. Then it kind of slipped out. Oh, I, I didn't mean to call him the house of the Lord. That will come later. No. He looked at them that way. He looked at all Israel as His temple. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that was the problem. You are the house of the Lord. He looks over Israel. And my house is filled with idolatry. My house, my people. That's the house that matters to the Lord. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, Paul talks to us. And just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst, be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The house of the Lord was the people of Israel. In the same way that the house of the Lord today is the church. And that in miniature... We are all the house of the Lord. In these bodies, these temples. The house of the Lord. So understand this about treachery. Treachery burns down the temple. A treacherous faith, a faith that betrays, a faith that chases after the things of the world rather than the things of the Lord will burn down the temple. I began to say a few minutes ago, I have seen people, I have watched people run after different things that looked good. Thinking, here's my purpose in life. This is my deal. This is what I'll do. This is what I'm going to be about. Not realizing that they're igniting a fire in their temple. That it's treachery. I'm not saying don't pursue different avenues of work or or interest in life. I'm just saying if those things suddenly become really important to you, such that even your relationship with Jesus is second place. It's treachery. And it will burn down the temple. But trust fills the temple with the Holy Spirit of the living God. And so the Lord would say to you and me tonight, I believe, come away. Come with me. Come out from their midst. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. And let me fill you. You trust me. I'll fill you. And we will walk in relationship together. Father, we pray that You will fill us so full of Your Spirit that the life of Christ will be manifest even in our mortal flesh, even in our bodies. That we truly will be seen as those who are passionate first and foremost about Jesus. And that all other interests, all other passions, all other lures in our lives, Father, would fall away. All other treacherous things. Lord, may we see them for what they are. And be a people who trust first and foremost in Jesus Christ. Fill these temples, Lord. Fill our lives with Your presence. 
And we love you. Thank you, Father, for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.